Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Uh, Today we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 14, and uh, there's a a lot to be said, and uh, if you're a note taker, I'm really sorry. If you're not a note taker, today is not the Sunday to get started. You'll be frustrated, okay? I'm only kidding a little bit, but there is a lot of ground to cover. Uh, The Lord has illuminated some things for me for this time, and I'm certain for us, even in the sense that I have in this room today, uh, we are we're seething for this. And so I know that this is the Lord's word for us today. I'm going to leave you to rightly apply it uh, to your life, but I want you to hear not me. I want you to hear the Lord speaking to us today. Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. Have you ever seen, you ever seen, one of my favorite things is the comparison of the, of if I say nailed it, do you know what I'm talking about? Nailed it. Like you see this work of art and then somebody trying to achieve the work of art and it is like ridiculous. Uh, this is one of those, this is one of those stories. It's like a, it's like a nailed it. It's like I've seen it modeled, nailed it, right? Immediately, he's referring to Jesus, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, I want to stop for a moment. I'm going to do this very much this morning. But that, that, that strikes me a little bit is that Jesus made the disciples. Uh, and so I did a little, little study on that word, and it is exactly the way it seems that word is used uh, be, because there is a reluctance on the other end. So I don't know to what degree, but this certainly wasn't something that the disciples wanted to do. There was a, an attachment to Jesus in this moment. Uh, the word literally means to force them. So there was some pushback, at least against their will. Mark uses the same word as Matthew uses in reference to the same story. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he refers to compelling people to come in to the master's party at the par- parable of the, of the dinner. Paul used it when he talked about his compelling Christians to blaspheme and to renounce their faith. It is a very, very strong word against another person's will. And so we don't know why Jesus is so insistent or why the disciples are resistant Perhaps Jesus wants to be alone. Perhaps they didn't want to be alone. Perhaps they were trying to console Jesus over a matter. Maybe they were wanting to be, uh, uh, they were experiencing some emotional uh, high of the day and they wanted to celebrate with Jesus. We don't know. Maybe they saw something on Jesus' face and thought, he doesn't need to be alone right now. We don't exactly know, but... The important thing to know is that Jesus was insistent and would not take no for an answer. This was necessary for him. So he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening evening came, he was there alone. 
But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beating, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's very early morning, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out. I want you to notice the progression that's here. It, it, if we read it quickly, we see it as like one keystroke, it's like one action. But there is a progression here, not a single step. Because this is how it works in our lives too. Jesus saw the wind, and you can't see the wind and see Jesus at the same time. Once you take your eyes off Jesus, fear begins to set in. And he was afraid. And fear grows Fast. How many of you know fear grows fast? I mean, a little bit of fear, and before long, it's a whole thing. It becomes paranoid. It becomes isolating. Lots of self-talk, lots of self-doubt, and it forces you to get inside your own head. And it happens in instants. And once you're in your head, you cannot have the mind of Christ. Once you get in your own head... You can't have the mind of Christ. You begin to sink. It's not one motion. Sinking is proportionate to the fear, which is proportionate to the amount of time you spend looking at the wind. I love this because it's not like gravity taken. This is a spiritual thing, not gravity. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, looks at the danger all around him, and begins to sink. So the sinking is proportionate to the fear, which is proportionate to the amount of time he's looking at danger. And we'll never know how deep Peter's body gets wet. But once he became desperate, he cried, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There's so much going on here. But many of the guys that were in the boat were fishermen. Some of them even by trade. Most of Jesus' disciples would have grown up near this Sea of Galilee, and they would have known it very well. They would have had insider knowledge of all the good fishing spots and how to navigate it in storms because they were very, very common on the Sea of Galilee. They would have mastered the ability to be in a boat and navigate to the shore, or so they thought. At least the ones who could a Peter, a James, a John, these guys who were professional fishermen should have been an encouragement to some of these other uh, non-fishermen on the boat, but they had nothing to offer them in this storm. 
No amount of seamanship, no amount of local knowledge could have prepared any of the disciples for not only this storm, but even the figurative storm that's going to threaten their lives. Maybe this is why they were a little resistant to get in the boat. Maybe, maybe some of these fishermen actually saw the weather patterns and saw the sky that night and thought, this isn't a good night for us to go across the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus was like, yes, you are. But Jesus, it's going, to, it's going to be bad. You are getting in the boat and you are going to the other side. Uh, on two separate occasions, the disciples of Jesus were overcome with fear when they were in a boat caught in a storm on this particular sea. And in both instances, Jesus came to the rescue. You remember the other account. I'm actually going to read it in Mark chapter 4. I'm beginning reading in verse 35 because I want you to see and I want you to hear some of the parallels in these two uh, passages. This is beginning in verse 35 of Mark 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the, sea, the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is obviously a, a different event than the one Matthew is referring to in Matthew 14. But it is a next step of growth for the disciples. This is many months after uh, uh, Matthew chapter 14 is many months after Mark chapter 4 uh, in these two, two stories. Uh, and interestingly enough, there are three out of four gospel writers that include uh, the story of Jesus walking on the water, but only Matthew includes Peter walking on water as well. So Jesus has sent his disciples on ahead for whatever reason without him to the other side of the lake while he's going up on the mountain by himself to, to spend some time alone to pray. Now, if you look at the context, and remember, you, you can only interpret Scripture when you have the proper context. You can see that this takes place on the same day as a couple of other events. Namely, Jesus has just found out that John the Baptist has been beheaded. Uh, after that, it says in, in the chronological uh, storytelling of this event that as soon as Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist, he got in the boat alone so that he could spend some time alone. And when everybody saw him alone, they thronged him. And they began to want to hear him teach. And so he began to teach and he began to heal some of their sick and he began to minister to them in the midst of this struggle. And... He doesn't, take, he doesn't have time for himself. And this turns into the feeding of the 5,000. You know that story very well. So this is the context of what's happening here. 
When Jesus heard about John, he's withdrawing. But very quickly, the people grab a hold of him and he's pulled right back into ministry and he has compassion on them and he ministers to them all day long and he has no time for himself. And so he gets to the end of that day and he's like, no, now this time you guys are getting in the boat and I'm going up on the mountain. Alone. I need some alone time. He's not gotten much. Sends the crowds home, puts the disciples in a boat And I don't know this for sure, but it seems like he stirred up the sea a little to keep them distracted so they couldn't get to him. I don't know. I'm making that up purely. It's like, uh, you know, you're putting your kids in time out a little bit. You know, I put you in a... No, Jesus would never do that. So we know that Jesus often goes off alone to pray. Following the death of John the Baptist, full day of ministry, he's absolutely exhausted. He's demonstrated his power many times over. The people still aren't getting it. But it says that he made them get into the boat. Jesus never, not one time, turned his back to the struggle of people around him. Never. Jesus needs some time to process the death of a loved one. And and yet immediately when there is a need, Jesus is speaking into the need. So here what he does is he puts the disciples on simmer while he was recharging. But Jesus is never being negligent. Jesus is never being spiteful here. But while Jesus' disciples are struggling... Jesus is praying. While they're struggling, Jesus is praying. And that's actually what he still does today, right? Hebrews 7, 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In in Luke chapter 22, if you want to turn over there, you can. Jesus is about to be arrested and his disciples do not are not understanding as when Jesus talks about his death. In fact, if you look through all of the Gospels, every time Jesus talks about his impending death and crucifixion, they start arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They just can't get it. But in verse 33 of Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, referring to Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's so much in here uh, that's kind of shrouded a little bit, but I just want to draw your attention to a few things. Jesus is letting them know that while they're about to go into fear, they're about to go into darkness, but he is going to be praying for them. I think Jesus is looking at all of the uh, uh, disciples and he says, you know, Simon, Simon, do you not know Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat? And I know what I would say. And what did you tell Satan? (laughs) Jesus never says, but he does say this, after you have Returned, the word would be repented after you have overcome the failure. Strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. Now your, your faith may fall. 
but I've prayed that your faith not fail. Because occasionally, we need a struggle. And if it wasn't for the struggle, we could not grow and develop. But as Christians, we often spend most of our effort trying to avoid the struggle. But here Jesus is plainly saying, and he could tell Satan, hit the road, but he doesn't. Just like Job, he turns him over. But I've prayed for you. It's what he does when we struggle. But there's something even more, I think, going on here that's very redeeming, although I am certain that Peter is not understanding it. But boy, it's going to hit him like a ton of bricks coming pretty soon. And I want to show you, draw your attention to it back in verse 31. It says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. Surprisingly or not, or not, Jesus says you. He's demanded for you to be sifted like wheat. And that word there is plural. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all of you guys like wheat. But I have prayed for singularly you, that your faith not fail. But all of these guys are going to go running through the woods when the guards come. And you're going to fail. You're going to fall. You're going to sink. But Peter's the only one that has any groundwork for the knowing how to overcome the sinking. But I've prayed for you, Peter. And when you have returned, so let's now fast forward to after the resurrection when Jesus catches these guys on the beach and he begins to eat with them and minister to them. and He catches Peter alone. And three times, three times he says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Strengthen the brothers. Because I've prayed for you. This was a part of the plan all along. Your struggle wasn't failure. Your struggle was sinking so that you'd know how to handle it. Isn't that powerful? And yet, we miss so much of God's plan and so much of God's power because we stay in the boat. I don't want to experience any sinking. Hats off to Peter for at least getting out of the boat. I've prayed for you. And whenever you repent of your failure, strengthen these guys. Because, because of your sinking, you're going to be uniquely equipped and prepared to lift them from theirs. Now, note takers, write this down. But to be used by me, you're going to have to be sifted. So in the midst of their storm, the waves are spilling over the edges of the disciples' boat. The wind's pushing them in every direction except the way they're rowing. And from their perspective, I know it felt like Jesus has abandoned them, forgotten them altogether. Jesus got something more important to do than their fear and their pain. And I don't know if they're upset about it or not, but Jesus is grieving. Jesus is processing. Jesus is recharging. But I am struggling and I know he would if he were here. I know he would help me if he were here. The first time the disciples were caught in the storm, they turned to Jesus. You remember? And they said, teacher, do you not care that we drown? 
And that's what they felt when Jesus was with them in the boat. You can imagine how they feel now with Jesus up on the mountain. Actually, we can imagine the fear, can't we? Because I think sometimes we live in that. Struggles hit us, worries hit us, fears hit us. And we wonder, if Jesus can calm it, why doesn't he? If Jesus, if Jesus is aware, why, is, why am I going through this? That's one of the questions that I think a lot of Christians ask when they go through things that they don't prescribe. Why me? It's funny, when fear replaces faith, we assume abandonment. But these guys, their faith was at an all-time high at lunch. And now, bottoming out. Has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? Does He even care if we sink or we drown? It's easy when the storm clarifies its presence in our life to be able to take our eyes from Jesus and become fearful and to lose faith and begin to this dark spiraling, and I am the chief of this, that dark spiraling dissension when we're tired and when we're frustrated and begin to feel alone. But I want you to notice something, and this is actually in Mark chapter 6, Mark's account of this story. While the disciples are fighting to stay afloat and wondering, not only did Jesus pray, but in verse 48 it says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus is up on the mountain because it gives him a perspective to be able to see them in their struggle. They're wondering where he is, and he's watching because the struggle is necessary as a part of their growth. Living in comfort was never the goal. Learning how to live in faith is. He never lost sight of those he loved. He never was focused on his own self-interest. More importantly, he was working a plan to deliver them what probably felt like one of the darkest nights of their lives. Jesus knew exactly what his disciples would encounter on the Sea of Galilee, and that's why he made them go, because they needed it. They needed to learn a few things. They're on a spiritual high. Their stomachs are full of this miraculous bread and fish. This is the perfect time for them to experience a spiritual eclipse of sorts. But they're never, never apart from his ability to see them. In fact, they need to experience the storm so that they could be prepared for the next storm that was to come. What, what should that tell us about our current struggles? Is struggle proof that God doesn't care? Is struggle proof that God's not watching? Is struggle proof? Is disappointment proof? Is, is faint, uh, uh, fear and pain proof that God just plays around with us? Now, God has a consistent plan of developing faith in us because he knows what we will need. In one of the darkest hours of Israel's history, the prophet Jeremiah, and I know many of you may claim this as your, as your verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, and I would never take that from you. But that verse was not written to you. That verse was written to Israel. If you want to claim their verse, you can. 
But it's not necessarily your verse, though I think by principle we can hold on to it. He says that I know the plans that I have for you, the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, while this is written specifically to Israel, I think the principle does stand. God wants good things for us. But sometimes to prepare and to produce good things in us, we have to go through things that we would never ask for. We have to learn some things and, and struggle through some things. But he's because he's raising us. But here's the truth for us in this verse Israel is in captivity when God says this. They're in captivity, they're under somebody else's authority. Because God is having to shake loose some things that have occurred because of their stubborn, hard hearts. And God is telling them that the storm that you're in right now is necessary, but it's not permanent. I know the plans that I have for you. I know what I'm trying to produce for you, in you, through you. You don't know the plans. I know the plans. You don't have to know the plans. You may not get to know the plans, but you need to trust the planner. Is it possible that sometimes God plans for us to, our lives, our growth to include storms? Of course. When Jesus met the disciples on the waves, remember what he said? Verse 27, take courage, don't be afraid. It is I. Uh, the Greek says, I am. This is where, this is where Jesus is claiming the name of God. And declaring himself to be God, walking on the elements. Jesus was never blind, uh, never blind to, or never removed from his disciples' situation. He knew exactly where they were, he knew exactly when and how he would intervene. He was never far away, never turned his eyes from his followers. And the same is exactly true for us today. When you think that God's not watching, he is. When you think that he does not care, he does. He orchestrates all things. And when you're in the midst of something that you can't understand, can't process, our goal can't be to avoid it or our goal can't be to understand it. We simply have to remember where he is. I mean, these disciples' journey across the boat at the Sea of Galilee should have taken maybe an hour or two at most. But here they've been on the water for anywhere between 6 to 12 hours and they've not even made it halfway. Can you imagine the frustration and the fatigue of trying to get somewhere that you were commanded to go and just be in molasses? Some of you know exactly how that feels. <laughs> Mark even tells us that Jesus walking on foot on the water in Mark chapter 6 verse 48 he tells us that, that walking on foot, Jesus could have passed the disciples in the boat. Jesus was walking on water faster than they were rowing. And when they saw him, they were, oh, a ghost. Well, it's easy to criticize them, but uh, they didn't know any better. That's what everybody believed, that if you died on the sea, you would haunt the sea. 
This storm was so bad, their assumption was somebody has died and they're already out there on the water. The storm was an equalizer. What, what advantage does Peter have in this moment? What, what advantage does James and John have at this moment? When you're, when you're in the storm, man, we're, it's the great equalizer. I can almost hear Peter shouting. I mean, really, I don't know what his voice sounds like, but I can hear somebody saying, I thought this was your thing, Peter. <laughs> How many times had Peter, Andrew, James, and John encountered a situation on the Sea of Galilee that they couldn't handle? Very seldom. At least one other time, but very seldom. That was probably the point. For hours, they were not able to use their strengths. He had to make sure that they were tired enough that they could not use their strengths in the storm. They were completely desperate and reliant upon him. But it's in our weakness that what? He is made strong. What do you think would be different in their mindset if they knew Jesus was watching? If they could see through the rain and they could see through the wind and the storm, if they could see through the darkness of night, if they could just see Jesus up there watching, do you think that it would change the way they felt about their current situation? If they knew Jesus was watching? Of course. If we just knew Jesus is watching, if we just knew that he is aware, we know that we're safe. They could have known peace inside the storm if they had known Jesus was aware. But sometimes Jesus doesn't take the storm away in order to provide peace. Sometimes you have to go through it. The miracle and the supernatural nature of God is to provide peace through conflict, not peace instead of conflict. At the perfect time, Jesus presented himself to them. They weren't expecting him. They thought he was a ghost. Peter said, well, if it is you, and I think that it was probably a lot more clear, like a sense it is you, allow me to come out there to where you are. Now, this is a lot more, I mean, it seems like he's being impulsive, and he probably is. But it seems like he's being more impulsive than I believe he really is being. I think this is a huge step of growth for Peter. Said, if this is you, allow me to come out there. What had they learned in the last storm? You know, when we get Jesus' attention, all we have to do is have Jesus here. What does Jesus do in a storm? When we're, when we're afraid in a storm, what does Jesus do? Peace, be still. Jesus, if it's really you, let me come out there. I'm going to show all these guys I've learned my lesson. Wherever you are, there is peace. And so let me come out on the water with you. I think it's significant growth for Peter. Jesus calms storms. Jesus has power over crisis. So if Peter is already exerting faith, he's showing Jesus. If this moment is a, I don't think it's an if it is, prove it kind of a moment. I think it's a, hey, Jesus, let me show you what I've learned. 
Remember, guys, Jesus calmed storms. I can't believe you forgot. That was only like four months ago. Come on, Peter. He gets out. He walks almost all the way to Jesus. I'm going to Jesus. You know, the greatest miracles of life happen when we're willing to trust Jesus, especially when we can't understand Jesus. When we allow our, our faith to build, we allow our faith to grow. And listen, I, I don't, I don't want to get too preachy here, but I think that we have reduced Christianity, and you've, some of you have heard me talk about this before, into a I want to be saved checkbox. And it's like that's, that's, the, that's the goal of salvation. But that, that's actually the birthplace of salvation is the I'm going to trust Jesus. That now gives power to every moment for the rest of your life. It's not a decision you make. It's a life you choose, right? Now, it may be a decision you make initially, but to truly grow in our faith, to truly walk in obedience to Jesus Christ, that's the goal of salvation, is to produce Jesus in our life, not just to go to heaven when we die. And so if we're going to build and we're going to grow it doesn't mean that there's an absence of storms in our life, but there is an awareness that Jesus is with us in the midst of those storms. That's how your faith is built. Your faith isn't built by always getting your way. Your faith can't be built by, be, by not being engaged in storms. God loves us too much to keep storms away from us. In fact, he orchestrates some of them, but they'll never drown you. But you may learn who you are in them so that you can prepare for the next storm. Once Peter stepped out on the boat, now, again, can't know for sure, but what do you think Peter is thinking when he steps out of the boat and starts heading toward Jesus? As soon as I start walking, I mean, it's going to be smooth sailing, right? That's what anybody would think. But Matthew writes, verse 30, when he, Peter, saw the wind... He was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. But the waves didn't stop just because Peter trusted Jesus. Life didn't get easier for Peter just because he trusted Jesus. In fact, trusting Jesus made it harder and less safe But it was even worse when he took his eyes off Jesus. Peter took his eyes from Jesus to his circumstances. He began to focus on the danger around him. He was only able to process the, the natural. He only began to think about, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm putting myself in that situation and I'm thinking as I walk out toward Jesus and I have one expectation, but he does another thing and I'm sitting here thinking, oh no, here's one thing I know, men can't float. Men can't walk on water, and I start trusting the natural, and what begins to happen? <laughs> I'm very right. Here I go. You know, when you begin to panic and you begin to make decisions based on fear, every time you panic and every time that you, you walk in disobedience, your body shifts, your faith shifts from trusting Him to muscle memory. A muscle memory makes you shift focus and you begin to look at circumstances. You begin to try to figure everything out and map your own way and depend upon your own strengths. But your faith cannot grow by trusting your strengths. 
Jesus knows this. It's why he's often testing them to get them out of you. A lot of times people, even in business or in relationships, only say, you know, you're going to focus on your strengths, minimize your weaknesses. That's a great motivational talk, but it's not in the kingdom. I believe that what Jesus wants to do is to help us maximize our weaknesses. And, you know, when you're using your strengths, some people are really, really good at certain things. And when you are good at certain things, you'll begin to move in that direction and trust. And at the end of the day, when something works out, you might be tempted to take credit for it. But when God tests those strengths in your life and you know that you're truly trusting Him because you're not proficient or even good at certain things, like somebody who's an extrovert and they're sharing their faith and they, you know, they're charismatic personality and they're just attractive. You know, they're just an attractive person. And they have this great worldwide ministry. At the end of the day, man, their head gets inflated and the but you get somebody who's just willing to say, he called me to, so I'm going to. I hear people say all the time, well, that's just not my thing. I just, I'm not comfortable doing that. You know, maybe that's the thing you should do because then you can know that Jesus is using you. You can put your head down at night knowing that you led somebody to Jesus and that's not your thing. You prayed with somebody and that's not your thing. Praise be to Jesus. And sometimes he puts us in struggles so that we'll be forced to do some of those things. But we get into self-preservation so quick, we don't even look at those opportunities. We're looking at our strengths of how to get out of it. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. In this sea you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When we focus on the waves, the world becomes a truly terrifying place. And fear is overwhelming. It begins to wreck everything. But faith is just like hope or peace or joy. It requires focus and it requires intentional, momentary living. Fear affects our memory. When you live in fear, you can't remember how faithful God has been. And when you can't remember how faithful God has been then your fear is actually impacting your, your future too because you can't see your faith to know to be able to trust a God. So like Peter, our experiences shift from faith to fear. Even in this particular story, from faith to fear to faith to fear. But we learn to look at Jesus as we go along. In verse 30, Peter called out in one of the greatest prayers of all time. Lord, save me. And I love that Jesus immediately, Jesus did not make him struggle beyond his ability to trust. He did not make it hard for him to be saved and rescued. But what did he do? Jesus immediately challenged Peter's doubt. Verse 31, O oh, you of little faith. But again, significant progress here. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus said when they were in the storm the first time and they did not believe in Jesus' peace be still, he turned around and he said, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Here, months later, little faith. Which would you rather have? No or little? At least this time, Peter's getting out of the boat. 
as forward motion. Let's celebrate that. This isn't the Peter who's crucified upside down just yet, but he ain't the Peter saying, Lord, you've brought us out here to kill us. The disciples were begging Jesus to intervene. They woke him up in panic. Luke, Luke writes, he got up, rebuked the wind, raging waters, the storm subsided, all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. And then concerning the disciples, Matthew wrote, this is in Matthew 8, 27, the men were amazed. The disciples were amazed and asked what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. After the first storm, the disciples ask a question. But now, after the second storm, they found their answer. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Not who is this man. Now we know. Jesus is teaching them, I'm not only in control when I calm the storm. I'm equally in control when I don't. But fear and faith can't cohabitate. One will drive your life. Trusting Jesus or fearing your circumstances. And I'm telling you folks, you cannot wash in and out of that. When bad things happen, that's not the time to take it seriously. Living consistently with your eyes on Jesus is the only way to navigate the certain struggles that are coming to help us grow to be more like Jesus. I love that they shift now from what kind of man is this to worshiping him as the son of God. By the way, this is the first time in the scripture that these guys verbalized his deity. They're experiencing incremental storms in their life and each one is growing their awareness of his faithfulness, of who he is. And we do too when we keep our eyes on him. If you go on and you read the rest of that, it says when they were safely in the boat, the winds ceased. Wait a minute. Safely in the boat? Jesus never calmed the storm until they were safely in the boat. I love that they very quickly shift from awe to worship. It wouldn't be the last time that they're going to forget who Jesus is. But that night, something had changed forever in them. So I want to remind you of a couple of takeaways. And I want us to very quickly put ourselves in this story, and I want us to navigate the storms of life. Number one, peace is not found in the absence of the storm. Peace is found in the presence of Jesus. It's the only place it can be found. Peace isn't found in the absence of a storm, only in the presence of Jesus. When, when Jesus bid Peter to come out onto the water, he didn't calm the storm. He invited Peter into the storm with him. Jesus never promised smooth sailing. If you're looking for smooth sailing in your faith, you're never going to grow. But Jesus did promise to always be with us interceding for us, 
understanding where we are at any given time and orchestrating a path of growth of Christ-likeness. Peter's walk on the water teaches us that in the middle of storms, we can have peace if we keep our eyes on Jesus. Not just when there is a storm, but even when there's not a storm, focused on a continual personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, growing in our faith requires stepping out of the boat. I know we like comfort. We all like safety. And that's not a bad thing. But, but often we can overinflate our desire for comfort and safety. Sometimes Jesus is going to appear and invite you to take some risks and trust him. And that moment that you step over the side of the boat, the storm may not calm. Sometimes you have to step out of the boat. Have you ever noticed sometimes when you pray, God says no? What, what would you think if I, if I told you that God never says no? If God says no to you, it's because you're asking the wrong thing. He wants to say yes. Your prayer doesn't change God. Prayer is designed to change what you ask for. So when God says no, you're asking for the wrong thing. God always says yes to his glory and to his will. So keep purifying your ask until you find what God's will is. That's where we live in animosity with God is when God doesn't agree with what we want and we keep forcing and forcing and forcing. What if God always wants to say yes, but not to your selfishness, not to your comfort, not for your pleasure, but for his glory? So I'm convinced that if we would just pray, God, your will be done, not my will. He's always going to say yes. But you have to conform, and that's going to require great risk. Prayer is about finding his plan, not avoiding storms. Sometimes his yes is going to include a storm. Sometimes his yes is going to require a struggle. But when you want him more than your comfort, he never removes his presence. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where is he with me? So sometimes when you have to risk and you step out of the boat, you're going to be overcome by fear. And we will sink. We will begin to sink. But Jesus is right there to catch us. And, and when you say yes to some of the big things that God wants for you, and you step out of the boat, and it doesn't, you know, we've never navigated walking on water before. We might begin to sink. All we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, save me immediately. You may sink, but you will not drown. But growth in faith does require risk and follow through. I think about Peter talking about strengths and weaknesses. I think Peter would say, uh, my strengths are I'm a risk taker. I don't mind being the first one in. My weaknesses, mm, I'd say follow through. I don't win much. 
I usually say things I regret, make decisions that I can't honor. Um, What is is exactly what Jesus does here. It requires risk and follow through. So I want to ask you today as we close, what are you risking? Like if, if, it, if it requires risk for us to grow, where are we growing? Where are we trusting our weaknesses so that we can see Jesus at work in our life? How, in this moment, how are you stepping out of the boat? And I don't mean that like just as a cliche. We've heard that for thousands of years, stepping out of the boat. But, but what is it? Is it this, are we trusting him to provide evangelism for us? Or maybe some of us should be in ministry, but we don't know what to say yes because there might be conflict. We're, we know we're supposed to be doing something. We're supposed to be loving somebody. We're supposed to be forgiving somebody. I'm convinced that there's people in here that should be planting churches, going international as missionaries. There should be people in here that are doing extraordinary things internationally for the kingdom. But we've got to play it safe. Do what little we can because we've got to avoid the storm. Some of you need to be praying with your wife. Well, I'm not even good at that. I just, uh, well, you need to risk and you need to follow through. Some of you parents need to be leading your kids better toward Jesus. Well, you know, kids these days, yeah, I do. You need to risk. You need to step up and you need to start speaking life into our kids because fear is going to. Fear is going to lie to them for the rest of their life. Some of us need to be doing some things I know God is calling us to. Maybe trusting a spouse. Maybe consistently speaking Jesus. Maybe shifting the gears of your entire life. Because you know God wants things different than they are right now for you. You know that God is calling you into, there's got to be more than this. Well, there is. Or you can play it safe and comfortable pleasurable, avoiding growth at all costs. And I don't know why this message, but if you're looking for the sign or the motivation to shift gears in your life, this is it. If you are Jesus, ask me to join you. Come. It's time for the shift. It's time for Christ-likeness. It's time for the mind of Christ to take over. It's time for us to grow tired going through the motions, waiting for heaven to come. It's time for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's time for Christian people to learn to live like Christ in this world, to mimic Him, to take great risks for Him, to do things that does not come naturally to us. Because with Jesus, you can not only tread water, you can tread on water. When you get to the end of this story, this story is never about Peter. It's not about Peter's faith. It's not about Peter walking on water. It's about the power of Jesus and how at the power of Jesus, we can move from questions to truly, this is the Son of God. Of God. And when that is your announcement, whatever He calls us to risk is worth it.
Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of these men, what we can glean from them and what you have preserved for us. And this morning, Lord, as we come to the close of this time together, I know we do not come to the close of what you want to do. I know that there are many, many people in here, many Christians in here that are taking it the easy way, doing what comes naturally, leaning into our own charisma, leaning into our own habits, leaning into our own plans, not even considering the fact of what you are trying to do through us. So Lord, I pray today that we would repent of where we have held on inside the boat. I pray that we would repent of seeking comfort and ease and calling that good. We look around the world and we say, how good is God? And we look at the most blessed, the one who has everything they want and, oh, God is good. But Lord, you are good when we don't get the diagnosis we want. You're good when we don't get the job we want. You're good when the relationship doesn't go the way we want. You are good. And all of these things can be used to grow us to look more like you. When we focus on you, we can do what you did. When we look at our circumstances, we'll do what normal, natural men do. for you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and I want to ask a question I want to know how to pray because I want to pray in that direction if you know right now that there's a shift in your life you may not know exactly understand all of it you may not know the plan but you know that there's a shift that Jesus is calling you to I want to be able to pray for you and if you'd like with you. You don't have to understand all of it, but I'd like for you just to simply, quietly lift your hand up. I'm not going to embarrass you. I see that hand and that hand all over the room. You can put them down, just up and up and right back down. I don't know how to shift though. Never had to shift and that's the beauty of it because you don't have to know how to shift. You just have to know who you're shifting toward. He doesn't call where he doesn't reveal himself. But but it does require a first step. So I ask you if we just one of the things you gotta got to do is we got to we got to make that first step that first commitment and say I don't know exactly what but I do know who yes Lord if you will make it clear if you'll ask me to come out of the boat I will walk toward you but we're going to have to overcome some hardness some hard heartedness some stubbornness probably going to have to put our pride aside for his glory 
those are those are big shifts. Some may just need the encouragement to start exercising spiritual gifts that you already know you should be doing. I know what it looks like to live like Jesus, and I've become very comfortable living like me. Maybe this is the day where we just kind of break, break free of that and say, you know what, I want to live whatever life Jesus calls me to and do whatever he has called me to do. I'm that abandoned. Maybe, maybe you've said that before, but you've not followed through. We're quick at making the risk, risky statements, but we don't follow through. So today's the day. Let's make a decision. Yes, this is the day that I'm going to begin to live in obedience to what Jesus is calling me to do, regardless of the conflict, regardless of the risk. Yes. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you will. I don't know about you, but for me, most of the moments in my life where they were defining moments, salvation, marriage, ministry, Repentance. These moments were always found at an altar. I don't know why we've seemingly abandoned like public acknowledgement of need. We're afraid of what everybody else is going to think. But today, if you're willing to say, I'm going to say yes to Jesus. Not just in salvation, but in, in every moment. I'm going to keep my eyes on him. And I need, I need my brothers and sisters' encouragement and prayer to honor it. As we close this morning, I'm going to do something just a little different. And um, not to give you the easy way out, but if this morning you are saying yes to Jesus, and again, I'm not referring just simply Salvation. We've, we've said that. But the risk, the, the ministry, the sensitivity to his spirit, the making a, an impact for his glory in ways that we couldn't do it on our own. I just want to ask you to bow your heads and raise your hands and let's pray together Lord we just ask that in the stillness of this moment that your Holy Spirit would spark something in us that our circumstances can't quickly take away but I pray that our steps would be swift because I know that the enemy has asked to sift us like wheat And I know that you are praying for us. Your word declares it. And so, Lord, I pray that as soon Satan sweeps in and starts whispering lies into our ears, as soon as the emotion is gone, so is the call. So I pray that right now we would make an emphatic yes in your direction. Call us to walk. And help us to keep our eyes on you. Not in just the big things, in the big moments, in the big decisions, but in the daily relationships, in our daily moments. May we be fully aware of your presence. 
and be obedient. We acknowledge that we have failed and we have fallen and we have begun to sink. But Lord, save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.